Hi, and welcome to Forest of the Future, the podcast series where we talk about what is evolving in FSC and what innovations are underway in FSC. Today, we are going to get nerdy about standards. And while that sounds like something you might be bored spending 30 minutes on, I assure you that it will not be boring. Because FSC is fundamentally changing the way that we develop and revise standards to make our system more agile and to put less burden on stakeholders. But how do you pull that off while at the same time safeguarding engagement and integrity in the standard setting process? That is the topic of today. And to help me learn much more, I've invited three colleagues from FSC's Performance and Standard Unit. In FSC, this is internally known as PSU. So when you end the interview, hear referrals to PSU, this is what is meant. The unit in FSC which handles the vast majority of our standards, procedures and policies. The three are really experts in their fields and they're all key parts of the pivot that we're trying to make. They are Joanna Novakowska, FSC Systems Performance Director, Stefan Salvador, the Director of Policy Operations, and Dorothy Young, the Program Manager for FSC System Performance. Enough introductions, let's start learning. Hi, and welcome everyone, and thank you for sitting down with me and explaining a bit more about what FSC is doing to revamp the way that our standards are created. Can you give us a bit of a background? FSC's normative frameworks or our standards, how large is that compared to other similar certification schemes out there? Like how many standards are, and documents are we actually maintaining? Normative framework is a term that we are using to reflect on entirety of our standards, procedures, policies and directives. It is large, so uh, we are still arguing internally what kind of count should we really take to describe it, but we stick to about 70 to describe the international scope of our regulations. In addition to that, in many countries, we have standalone standards or controlled risk assessments that are consisting of separate sets of requirements. And in total, both of those amount to about 150 at the moment. So it is a lot to grasp. Why it was growing so large? We are global. We are in more than 80 countries at the moment. FSC, in order to make sure that our system has uh, strong integrity, can be implemented on the ground and can be implemented in so many different operations that we are covering, must have very clear and strict rules in place. And that means that in order to be relevant for all of these kinds of operations that we are covering and for all of these places, we have to split our rules into different sets of requirements. And this is one of the key factors that contributes to the amount of documents. Uh, plus also, once we release a given standard or procedure, we learn from the implementation on the ground. So it is very often that we need to then follow up with extra documents to make sure that our integrity is preserved which again adds up to the overall number. How many documents do you think we have compared to other certification schemes? Do we have an idea of that? We have an idea. So the 70 that I gave you before, we tend to compare with other certification schemes. And we are by far the largest from from the knowledge that we have gathered so far. On average, other certification schemes have about 10 of normative documents. And we have 70. (laughs) To each other, I see reaction on your face and I can only guess that our listeners have similar reactions. So 
we need to remember that forests itself is a complex ecosystem, as well as supply chains related to forestry, all the types of products that you can create and types of operations, especially in the global context, are quite complex, led us to have this many normative documents. And why is it then a challenge to us that we have so many documents? Let me start from the pure fact of maintaining such sets of requirements. So, of course, rules need to be up to date. And we are imposing rules on ourselves to update them regularly and at least every five years, which means that if, if we have 70, this effort is times 70. Depending on the category of the document, this effort may be lesser or greater, but still it is a significant effort. Plus, in this process of updating, revising our normative requirements, we try to engage as many stakeholders as possible. Our members traditionally were the forum to which we were reaching out to feedback. However, with this number of documents and each of them in the process of revision having different stages of engagement, our members and other stakeholders feel often completely overloaded with the number of information and documents we are sharing and asking, hey, can you tell us, can it really work on the ground? Could you point us to other different and important aspects that we should consider in, in this process of the revision? So it is continuous overload of information and requests from our side to our stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Plus, having rather mechanical until now, until the new procedure way of approaching the revision processes also leads us to to sometimes miss the big picture. We are so focused on the single documents that with time we found it more and more difficult really to zoom out and look outside of a single process and see what can really change on the level of principles rather than working on details of clauses that are already captured in this document. Let me add the last point that, of course, this amount of documents that we currently need to revise also poses a very significant capacity challenge uh, on FST, not only on PSU staff in our unit, but also on other colleagues that need to support us in these processes. So also the workload that it is creating currently in our organization is quite substantial and something that we would definitely like to limit. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. And you mentioned a key word there that can then allow me to bridge to you, Dorothy, because you said with this new procedure. And this new procedure is also internally called the mother of all standards or PRO01001. So, Dorothy, can you just explain to us what is that procedure? So this procedure defines how we develop and how we revise requirements. And it applies to all of the international normative documents, or now, as we want to say, sets of requirements. And it includes how working groups are being set up, how consultations are being done, and also who decides what. So it's basically what defines how are we making changes in all of our standards and requirements. Exactly. The 70 documents (laughs) that we were referring to earlier, uh, they are governed by the procedure and all the details that are uh, specified. (laughs) And that procedure has now been revised. What is new? What is it that we will be doing differently? So we are introducing more agile ways on how we conduct the many revision processes and also development processes. We have now three types of process, what we call major, regular, and accelerated. And looking at our entire normative framework, we want more of the documents to follow what we call the regular process, because that will make our, let's say, process more efficient. 
but we also want to tackle uh, the quality of of the revisions and the development processes. And uh, tackling the the quality is also something that we want to do by improving stakeholder engagement. For example, by introducing what we call so-called conceptual phase, that we involve members really early on in the process before even a working group has set up. And that is, is one of the ways we believe that our stakeholders can engage in a more meaningful way. And so this would be maybe the top two. There are many, many others. Maybe we should just introduce the listener to how we use to do standard revision. So, and maybe this is me I'm oversimplifying, but to my knowledge, what we did before was to call for a working group, have a technical working group, have that working group do a draft which went into consultation, then a second draft, another round of consultation, and then basically decision. Is that correct? Sort of simplified? Yeah, in, in a simplified way. I mean, we, we do start with a sort of review report before even saying that we're going to conduct a revision. We establish the need for whether or not we should do it. But then mainly uh, very much uh, relying on a working group to drive the process forward. And now the, the change is that actually before we have this working group, and before we do the drafting, we invest more time into actually establishing what are the objectives of the revision, what are the high-level solutions that we're working on, and trying to bring in stakeholders really early on in the process. Also then, based with the understanding that once there is the drafting done with the working group, that this will be a quicker and a smoother process, and thereby we may not need to have three consultations on technical drafts as sometimes we, we used to have in, in the past. Mm -hmm. And this is what's called the conceptual phase. Exactly. And this conceptual phase, is that part of the three different revision processes that you mentioned? It is a part of the major ones, which are more dedicated to, to the policies, like only few documents and what we used to call chamber balance processes, where we have working groups with chamber balance membership, um, and to the regular one, which will apply to most of them. And then we also have what we call accelerated process, where we have an urgent need to, to regulate and to develop a change, and there we will not have a conceptual phase, just because we already know what is needed. Okay, so now you covered basically the accelerated one, which is we already know what we need to change. Let's just put that in there, send it out for consultation. Can you give me a description for what the two others, what defines those two other processes that we now have? For the major ones, this is for, for the policies, the process will be, I would say, fairly similar to the big step that we have currently, only that we also have a conceptual phase. There will be public consultations always, and also the board of directors will be the decision maker. And then for, for the regular one, which would apply to most of our procedures and standards, there would be a conceptual phase. But then we would also be introducing what we call focused uh, consultation. So where people, stakeholders nominate themselves and say, I have an interest to participate, but we're not directly sending all the documents to everybody, but we want to sort of see who could best give uh, feedback. And then also the, there's a change in the decision-making bodies because for the regular ones, it will not go through first going to the policy and standards committee and then the board of directors, 
I know it will be uh, the Policy and Standards Committee will be the final decision maker. And that is one of the elements where we seek to improve also the efficiency of, of the process because the duration matters and currently those processes take too long. So that is one of the elements that we're uh, changing there. So speed seems to be one of the reasons why we're making these changes to the way that we're, we're setting our standards. Is it just for speed? No, we've been talking about streamlining the normative framework and the procedure is one of the elements that we can really lay the foundation to streamlining. And from our perspective, it has those two components, efficiency and effectiveness. And efficiency that has this uh, speed dimension, but effectiveness, it's also about how do we know that our standards will be good ones so that we should be doing more to, to test documents. It, it also has this element maybe of stability and predictability that we engage stakeholders in in the right way so that we have uh, the good feedback sometimes we get feedback after our documents are already published there's many dimensions that we now include and i would say efficiency is even the smaller component after all because uh, effectiveness is is really what what really matters most that actually makes me think of something that I forgot to ask you about, and I will let Joanna talk about outcome orientation in, in a second. But you said test our standards. And one of the other things that I think is new in the, no, the new procedure or the revised procedure is the concept of field tests. Am I correct? It's not new. But we've also connecting to how many documents do we have. While we were doing the revision process, we incorporated and we revised one other document, which was actually a policy, and that's a policy for pilot tests. So now to structure more the different kinds of tests that we do, we speak about desk tests, field tests, and and also the, the, the pilot tests. And so now we have one document less because we've also looked into these re uh, requirements and revised them now. Okay. And Joanna, do you want to come in and talk a bit about outcome orientation? So let me start, Loa, from reminding us that the procedure regulates the rules for how we develop and maintain international documents and requirements. There is parallel process that is sort of mirroring at what happened with the revised procedure and deals with the rules for country standards or country products, as we started to call them. And it will introduce, as we see it now, quite similar approach to develop local requirements. Why I mentioned that in responding to outcome orientation question? Because as you probably heard me before on those podcasts, the, the primary reason to have a standard is to, to see the effects of that standard or procedure. And this is our great, great ambition behind outcome orientation to write standards in a way that we can actually see the outcomes. It's easier said than done, because obviously, if you analyze many of our requirements, you could argue, well, they are outcome oriented. For example, principles and criteria are based on outcome orientation principles. However, our system for monitoring those outcomes and the sheer amount of different outcomes that you could distill from our requirements, it's just immense. So we don't have proper monitoring system and data collection system to be able to systematically really track those outcomes. So the idea that we are introducing now is to focus and the procedure takes first step towards focusing on outcomes and asks that in the development or revision processes for normative requirements, we will be looking at what we want to achieve first. So we will be selecting prioritized key intended outcomes and 
Along with that, we will be defining what kind of data do we need in order to monitor whether we have to achieve them or not. Because the procedure is focusing on international requirements, we will not have that so many standards that will be immediately affected and immediately introducing uh, such key intended outcomes. But it will be of huge importance in this mirroring process that is relevant for, for country-related requirements. So, for example, something that we today call national standards or, or a stewardship standards or controlled wood risk assessments. But in short, the step of requiring to define key intended outcomes and then build the system allowing to, to track them it's a huge step towards realizing the ambition of having finally consistent impact data in our system. Okay. I need to understand that a bit more. When you're saying we're, we're selecting outcome KPIs, basically, is that for the revision process or is that for what the standard after its revision should be achieving? Or It is really both, Loa, because in the standard, we would like to say in the document itself, what is the key intended outcome that the standard procedure aims to achieve? So it will be part of that document, Perfect. of that set of requirements. And later, after the document is approved, those key intended outcomes will be embedded in our data requirements. So it actually, I would say, is both. Mm-hmm. When does that happen? When do we define that? Do we define that before the conceptual phase so it can help inform the conceptual phase? Or is it only once we're developing the draft. That's exactly one of the key purposes of a conceptual phase, to understand collectively, together with our members and stakeholders, what do we want? I'm going to drill more into the details here, but I can't help but get curious. We now have three quite different ways of revising standards and with uh, different levels of reaching out to our uh, stakeholders and our members, who actually defines which should go into which kind of revision process. That's a good point. We actually went through an exercise with the FSC Board of Directors to look at our current list of normative documents and to already get uh, approvals for which document goes where. But moving forward, there will be an annual process where we develop so-called normative framework schedule. This is the document that informs stakeholders what kind of processes we will be starting in the next two years. And then on a yearly basis, we will also be going to the board of directors for for guidance. But then the final decision will be taken internally within FSC. And in the procedure, we have certain criteria, certain descriptions to say which document goes where. So The big level divisions are policy major, procedure standards, regular, and the the urgency to keep FSC system integrity for the accelerated. But of course, there are then some exceptions to which goes where as well, because just to have the, the type of document category is a little bit too simplistic to capture all the different cases. And we currently have a normative framework where we, for some historic reasons, we have some documents that are called pilot testing uh, policy that are not necessarily really a a policy. Is that actually new as well, that we have an overview two years ahead where you as a stakeholder can see what's up for revision when? It's not entirely new. So currently, and we have all these different names for, for these documents. So currently, we call it a policy roadmap. It's already on the website. Um, but there is now new information. So for example, which process goes where is something that stakeholders can see. And we've just created a dashboard. So this is more interactive. Mm-hmm. Isn't so interactive that you can actually, as a stakeholder, also say, well, 
I want to get informed when this process starts or will they have to keep an eye out for themselves? They will be asked, for example, for these focus consultations that, that I was referring to. So, so where uh -huh. we don't want to send documents to, to everybody, but we really want to uh, get an idea on who's really interested to participate in the process. So there we, at least for the short term, we will need to send out invitations. Currently, we don't have an integrated platform. That's maybe something for the future. But of uh -huh. course, we have uh, now on the FSC Connect, we continue to have the FSC, the process pages and we will see that we can make better connections so that uh, information is more accessible to, to stakeholders. Uh -huh. Thank you. Stefan, you've been waiting very patiently for me to come around to you. I love the idea of focused consultation because one of the things that we have heard from stakeholders repeatedly, and I know that you know this, is that they just are overwhelmed with the amount of information that we send to them. But I also can't help but think, how do we make sure that we get to the right stakeholders at the right time and, and that they don't just disengage from our revision processes? That's a completely uh, other question, I think, for us. How do we actually reach out? Um, this is not regulated by the procedure as such. It's the, the procedure regulates more the opportunities when they can engage and on what but how we are acting towards the certificate holders or our stakeholders more generally is on a separate page. And this is where we also look into our means of operations as, as a unit, as PSU or as an organization as a whole. We're drafting a new stakeholder engagement toolkit that gives us also new, new ideas or stakeholders also maybe better overviews of how they can engage in various processes. That's maybe where we leave our territory as PSU in terms of this normative world that tells us exactly how we do things in a step-by-step -step fashion. It's something where we need to be agile, I think, and open towards ideas, new technologies. And we are also very dependent, I think, on our network partners in reaching really to those critical actors that can make a difference in the way that we are writing standards. The short answer is we haven't regulated mm -hmm. it. We are open, we're trying a few new things, but it's recognized you now that this is another dimension of the problem, how to actually, which channels to use, how to actually translate whatever relevant content into, into a language that is understandable and intriguing for our stakeholders. Yeah, because the difficulty is if we send them too much, they just ignore it, right? Is that a tendency that you've been seeing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part, I guess, of what we already have kind of tackled. In my view, it's kind of the sales pitch is you know, that we are now offering them much more targeted pieces of what they uh, are supposed to engage with, which maybe I personally in, in particular think is it's really quite exciting if you can weigh in as a stakeholder on what do we actually want with a standard? What do we actually want certificate holders to achieve with it? And to really then lift the thinking away from the individual clauses and requirements and definitions and all of that stuff, which I think most of our stakeholders uh, suffered from, towards these, these bigger picture questions. How to then still make that kind of outreach and, and invite them to engage on this, what I think is, is a very exciting change of contributing to our uh, normative framework overall, is still something where we need to be learning. And what are you doing to, to learn and to innovate? Are you going to be testing different models in the upcoming re revisions or 
Or how are you going to move forward in that direction? Surely we have to. Now we have at least two major processes coming up. One is the revision of our chain of custody standard plus some neighboring standards that go along with it. And we have identified a list of, of uh, major topics that we want to tackle there. And as part of that, that's already a very complex project that a simple working group will not be able to address. So we need to distribute the work on several shoulders. We need to engage network partners, market research, testing of requirements, doing studies. All of that will be in the future a, a much more diverse mix of instruments that we have to use to prepare ourselves, particularly for developing new concepts. The, okay. the other big project is revision, very likely a, a needed revision of our principles and criteria. And along with that, our international generic indicators. And that is, of course, the, the biggest questions we can tackle or the fundamental questions in forest management. And again, here we need to think how, how far do we need a regional engagement or how do we, do we structure it topical-wise? What kind of upfront research and analysis do we need to do? Mm -hmm. It's not completely radically new, but I think we don't have a clear model. We relied in the past very much on sending a note for consultation and waiting what comes back. That is, I think, where we need to be much more proactive and also diverse in the future. Yeah, because it sounds like it might, it might not be completely revolutionizing engagement methods. But then again, I mean, in their standard revision setting, it is kind of revolutionizing, at least for us, that we are allowing many different models and looking at the individual processes and saying this process could benefit from research combined with regional input, combined with topical input to sort of get the full picture. We haven't tried that before, have we? We have tried it. Maybe we were partly forced to try it. I would say as part of one of the very long-lasting processes that was ultimately concluded last year, which was to come up with a new approach towards conversion, the FSC system. Uh -huh. Here we have actually invested quite a lot in accompanying studies. So we conducted various studies, discussion papers, We ended up with regional kind of roundtables with stakeholder dialogues where we then also carried forward the results from one of the discussions to the next round of discussions. We, we have tried a few uh, of these things, but Perfect. definitely need to learn more about this and be sure also what is the right mix for a given process. Joanna, can you help us just bring us back up into the helicopter? I know you're really good at that. From your point of view, what is it that we're trying to achieve here? How will it, this enable us to move faster and, and be more risk-based? Because, I mean, we might engage in different ways, but doesn't necessarily make us faster to ask more people <laughs> in more ways. That's fair enough, Loa. So first of all, the world and our and FST world, including, suffers really from overload in decision-making on various levels of life. So first change that we are aiming to achieve here is focus. Applying Pareto rule, 20% is 80, less is more, really. Uh -huh. Let's focus on the big picture. Let's make sure that we align on that and the details will follow. That would be the simplest way to describe it. More quality engagement that both Dorothy and Stefan already touched upon. So 
in order to sending the same complex technical document to everybody, let's first engage on big concepts with our membership from whom we expect strategic direction and then let's work with technical people on details. So everybody is assigned to their jobs yeah. and hopefully the skills are matching as well. Plus all the various uh, engagement systems that we can now apply. More alignment internally within FSC over processes. Something that we have not mentioned yet in this conversation is that together with the procedure that is publicly available, Dorothy's team is developing a set of really good standardized tools for us to manage these processes. And there is a requirement internally that before you engage with any stakeholders, we need to engage with ourselves and really make sure that all our processes are well aligned, that we are on the same page, that we are not, introdu not introducing contradictions between different proposals coming uh, uh, with different revision processes. The next goal for us an opportunity is to align better between our engagement teams that are working on concepts entirely new for the organization, such as, for example, landscape approaches, uh, so that we can then take over such work and translate it to relevant normative documents. Currently, being PSU employee, I cannot help myself saying that, that we need more order. We want to introduce more predictability in terms of what should a given category of normative requirements include. Is it a big requirement on policy level? Is it something more technical that can be called a standard or procedure? The last point, the new procedure is really creative. It, it forces our staff, our people to be creative. It brings much more accountability on our shoulders. There is no more coordination only. There is now process leadership and making sure that this process delivered relevant standards or procedures. So it is much more demanding on our side than it used to be, but I do hope that it also helps us to go beyond our comfort zone and also is much more rewarding for our people, giving them more opportunities to grow and learn. Mm -hmm. Interesting thought that it actually pushes you to think differently. I guess the engagement part of it is, is part of that as well. Dorothy, I'm getting a bit curious. What is the system that you developed on the side? Basically, yeah, some supporting tools. For example, we have checklists now that accompany the procedure that give more clarity uh, what you do when because the, the procedure has the key steps but not sort of the in-between steps. So that is something that, that, that will be driving consistency and also giving giving guidance to the process leads. But then we have other tools, for example, what we call the stakeholder engagement toolkit. And this is something that is being, being worked on that looks more into what could be the different methods maybe that we're applying when we do consultations and how can we attract more stakeholders, not not the typical ones that, of course, we, are, we very much depend on, we very much appreciate, but also how can we actually widen our reach. Uh, but then it goes to other documents, like how do we do a viability assessment so that we really know before we decide on a revised standard and that actually we've done a good process and we really can and know for sure that there will also be some stability achieved. Very interesting. And I like the notion that we are trying to engage more people and different people in our standard setting processes because we're creating this new place for them where they can dream and they can suggest things that might not be as technical. Again, devil's advocate here. I don't know whether this goes to you, Stefano, whether it goes to Joanna, but when we're opening that can of worms and saying, here you go, dream big, what should our uh, standard custody standard, for example, include? Are we then also risking us disappointing them when we're saying, 
well, actually, we can't include that. Sure, there is, there is a risk with that. No? But I think we need to be challenging ourselves more than we did in the past with new concepts, new ideas, and partly reinvent ourselves. Our model is now about almost 30 years old. We see that we reach some limits in our effectiveness, whether it's the use of technology, coupling with, with relevant topics in the outer world and trends where we maybe run the risk of losing touch. It will be higher risks, of course, for disappointments, but it will be also a high opportunity for big wins. I think one comes with the other. Okay. They always like to end these podcasts on allowing people to, to dream big for a while and say, wow, wh where will we be in three years' time? Imagine you're now three years into the future. We've tried to utilize this new procedure. We brought it into action with the Pianacosti standard, for example. What have we been able to do? Where is this new procedure gotten us? Dorothy, let me start with you. So I would say that we do a survey with our stakeholders and membership, and, and, and they feel that there's less consultation fatigue and, and they're, they're happier with our results. That can be because we engage them in a more meaningful way, but also because our actual standards will have a better quality and will be more stable. Another dimension is really the number of documents. And that's not only because of the procedure, but we use this now as, as a tool to see how can we merge. And there's many processes already ongoing. And maybe then they, our number of documents will already be down to maybe 50. <laughs> and maybe I know that I made it hard for you by saying, let's just focus on the revision of the way we revise our standards. Let's just open it up then if that makes it easier. Stefan, for you, where should we be in three years when it comes to our normative framework, if we make it as broad as that? So users like CVs and certificate holders, they, they will appreciate that our new requirements that we introduce, that this happens only twice a year in, in, in more predictable fashion. They get not surprised, they can better plan for and assimilate their operations much more easily. Likewise, stakeholders will appreciate that they are engaged primarily in questions that really matter, that this can be left to experts and, and technical drafters. And then maybe more generally, whether it's the global public or also the non-expert user of our system, they will appreciate that our standards are just clearer, more understandable, simpler, easier to grasp. And overall, we will be able to communicate the first systematic way of reaching outcomes on the ground and have a model for that. If we reach that, then I think we've come a huge step forward. It would be nice. Joanna, dream big. Where are we in three years? <laughs> I would like to share two dreams. Dream number one. Imagine you are somewhere in Balkans. You are really a very highly respected expert. You are very busy because everybody respects you and everybody wants to hear from you. And you suddenly hear about FST consultation, about standard in your country or China of custody standard, whatever. Initially, you don't want to engage because you are so busy, but then your colleagues are telling you, hey, do it because it's really worth it. We really need that you take part in this consultation. You do. And then after the standard is approved, you're really glad that you did because you see, you feel that, that the feedback you provided was duly considered and, and it really makes sense to the point that you decide that next time nobody will have to ask you. <laughs> you will just sign up for the newsletter and you will be tracking other processes that are out there. Dream number two, 
is that we become new standard for other certification schemes, how to do engagement. And instead of asking around, what can we do better? It's uh, that we are being asked by others, how did we achieve uh, our, our really meaningful engagement and good quality of our standards. That is a nice dream. And I would love to help you reinvent how to do engagement <laughs> on the ground. Thank you, all three of you, for taking time to, to talk to me and explain me a bit more what is in that procedure and how we're working to do different ways of engagement and revisions of our standards. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. That's it. Thank you to Joanna, Dorothy and Stefan for making me a bit wiser on the standard setting processes, how complex they are to change and why it's so important that we do change and become more agile. Let's hope that their big dreams come true, that we in three years time will have fewer documents and documents that are fit for purpose and which revision processes fit the level of updating and revision needed that our stakeholders will feel less overwhelmed with engagement opportunities, but that they feel that FSC is a place where they can go and dream big and give us big ideas if they have them, but that they can also dive deep into the details of the wording in the individual criteria when they would like to. And lastly, that Joanna's dream come true, that we in three years time have learned so much about creative and agile ways of doing stakeholder engagement that other certification schemes will look to FSC to learn and that our stakeholders feel that their time spent on providing input was worth every minute and led to true positive impact on the ground. Remember to subscribe to Forest of the Future if you want to get notified of new episodes where we dive into other innovations within FSC and the world of certification and sustainable forest management. You can also always get in touch with me on podcast at fsc.org. I am Laura Worm, and this was Forest for the Future.